please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were full beasts, four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion. And the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. As I was preparing this sermon, I was taken back in my reflections to the time of my own conversion. I was walking in a wayward course and the Lord met me along the way. But the circumstances of it, even to the present day, seem a bit unusual. I was studying to become a personal trainer, a fitness professional. I was exposed to a particular exercise scientist. And for the first time in my life, I came into contact with someone who took reasoning and knowledge very, very seriously. I was in my early 20s. This was something that was quite alien to me. I saw the power of... uh, principles of logic and reason in that aspect of my life. And it drew me to more general considerations. Well, if this is useful for this aspect of my life, well, I should attempt to apply these things to every area of my life so I can be likewise successful in all areas. But it drew me back to some very fundamental considerations and to a consideration again of the religion of my upbringing. Christianity, because ultimately I had to consider, well, what sort of man am I to be on a very fundamental level? If I am simply a cosmic accident, then perhaps my greatest hope is 70 years of happiness and pleasure. And the ethics that grow out of that would be whatever is necessary in order to obtain that. 
However, if I am created by God to fulfill a purpose, it is very important for me to know what that purpose is. Because it very well might not be my pleasure at all, but I might be created for something else altogether. So here I was brought to you very fundamental considerations. And by God's grace, I was able to uh, come to the right ones, that I'm not my own, but I'm a creature. And not just a creature, a creature fallen and bought with a price. So I'm not my own, but I'm to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness, my chief end being the glory of God and the enjoyment of Him. We find this very much in our text this morning. We're going to be looking at the 11th verse and finishing up Revelation chapter 4. So, today in the sermons we have an ending. Revelation chapter 4 and a beginning of the doctrine of the church. Remember where we are. This is going to be very important, not only for this morning, but for the sermons beginning in Revelation chapter 5 next week. We are... In a vision, looking into the holy place. It appears, and I think we will see this further justified, that John, who is narrating events for us, is standing at the door of the holy place. He is able to look into the holy place, but he is able also to turn and to look upon the court, the temple court, as well as out onto the Roman world. Remember, uh, Zion was a high mountain. He's in a mountainous place and able to look down upon the whole world, as it were. Right now, he is gazing into the holy place, and we're struck right away that there is no veil to the holy of holies. The Ark of the Covenant is in view, the footstool of the throne of God. And God is not absent. But he is portrayed here for us as being seated upon his throne, ruling all things. If you can gather one thing from Revelation chapter 4, you will have done pretty well to take that away. That the center of everything that we'll see, the center of the history of the world and all of its events is that divine throne. And from that place God rules over everything that happens and over all that is. The holy place is not empty, but it is inhabited. Uh, We have the 24 priest kings, representative of all of the people of God, seated on thrones about that one divine throne. And I was struck anew. We just had this in family worship. You remember it said that the four living creatures are in some way, uh, in the midst of the throne, and yet in another way round about the throne, we were just studying the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, and we were reminded that the cherubs were of one gold piece with the mercy seat itself. So it wasn't as if the cherubs were fashioned separately and then welded onto the mercy seat, but the mercy seat, And the cherubs were were hammered out of one single giant piece of gold. They were all one. And I thought that this might be a further explanation of how it is that very much like those cherubs, they are in the midst of the throne or part of it. 
and yet also round about it, because you remember that their wings stretch up and they surround and they uh, and they cover. So these ones, these four living creatures, are very near to the throne, indeed. And as we said, the evidence seems to indicate that these are ministers performing a ministerial function. We'll come back to them in just a moment. We saw also a menorah, a seven-branched candlestick, representative of the churches, certainly, but here primarily in view is the fact that these churches um, do not shed light on their own, but they shed light as they are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And all of this is upon a glassy pavement. The total vision must have simply been breathtaking with all of this light and color and all reflected in a glassy pavement enough to take a man's breath away. We shouldn't be surprised to find that the people of God as they are there assembled and as the spiritual life and essence is open for us, the spiritual life and essence of the church is open for us, we find them worshiping. The ministers of the church, the living creatures, call the people of God to worship by proclaiming the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. The holiness of God. The power of God. And His eternity. Which was and is and is to come. And in this way they give glory honor and thanks to that one who sits upon the throne and who lives forever and ever. And last week, we, or two weeks ago, we began to take up the response of the 24 elders. It's threefold. They come down off their thrones at this call as if it wasn't appropriate for them to be sitting upon thrones at all when they came to consider the one who was seated upon that one grand throne. They fall down before him. They worship him uh, as one who ever lives. And they take off their crowns and they cast them at his feet. They have been the recipients of a great grace. Their graces have been crowned by God, but they would have all of those crowns to redound to his glory as the only one that is worthy to receive glory from such things. And now finally with verse 11, we have the content of their worship. We have uh, their worship here summarized for us. Verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. So in general here we have a declaration. They declare God's worthiness to receive worship. And no doubt in such a declaration they are also worshiping God themselves. It's very interesting to me as it was to James Durham that they don't say we worship thee or we bring thee glory, honor, and power. They are doing those things. But uh, Durham thought that there was, and I'll just leave this for your reflection, um, a recognition that the worthiness of God to be worshipped excels their ability to actually bring that worship. And so their high praise is not so much a declaration of what they are doing, but his worthiness to receive glory, honor, and power. 
And indeed, uh, they declare rightly, because it's not our God worthy to be worshipped even when man withholds and refuse that worship. To consider their worship more specifically, they declare him to be worthy of uh, here three things, glory, honor, and power. We'll come to this more specifically, but you start to see part of the problem here. In the worship of God, we don't actually add anything to him. God is glorious in and of his, in and of himself. When we say that we glorify God, we're not adding glory to him, which is impossible. Rather, we are reflecting back toward him his own glory. We are extolling it or magnifying it or focusing upon it and calling others to do so as well. But we don't add anything to it. Fantel called it the problem of the full bucket. God's glories are already full and you can't add anything to a full bucket. Uh, with respect to honor, here you have creatures recognizing the superiority of God, that he is worthy of their honor and to be recognized as their superior and you see this also in their worship in the sense that they have come down from their thrones. They've fallen on their faces before him. And they've taken off their crowns and cast their crowns at his feet. So here, both in word and deed, they are showing their honor for one that is greater, infinitely greater than themselves. And they also say here, and this, this is really the one that creates the most problem Linguistically, they say that God is worthy to receive power. Of course, God is already all-powerful, and you can't add to his power. We certainly don't add to his power, and so the question becomes, what does this mean? I think that there are two strong contenders as far as interpretation, and um, I really think that the first is likely the one. Um, Basically, uh, the first interpretation would be that God is worthy to receive the praise that is due to his power. Um, this, is, this is a rhetorical figure, very common in all languages, really, called metonymy. Uh, here you refer to the power itself in the place of something that's attached to the power, namely its praise. Call it a metonymy of adjunct. Here you are referring to the power itself, but what you're really referring to is a certain thing that is adjoined to that power, namely its praise. And so basically they're saying that God is worthy to be praised because of his great power. We have a similar thing in uh, the Psalms. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you, but you will, you'll see what I mean. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So here there's a, a call to the mighty to give to the Lord glory and strength. But of course we don't give the Lord any strength. He gives us life and strength and all things. What uh, the psalmist is doing here is calling them to worship, to praise and extol this great and powerful God. And that's clear enough in the text itself. There is a second interpretation. It's so 
so close to the first you might wonder why I even bring it up, although it is, a, it is a shade different. There could also be here an acknowledgement of God's worthiness to wield all power. That God is worthy to re- wield all of this power. And maybe even more than that, that it seems good to us and we are glad of it that he wields all power. You have something uh, very similar to this. Turn forward to Revelation chapter 11. You have a, a, a very similar expression from the 24 elders again in Revelation chapter 11 verse 17. I'm sorry, back up one verse 16. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped. So notice the parallel. Saying, we give thee thanks. So this is, a, this is a thanksgiving. And notice what they say. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. So some interpreters have looked at this and said that they think that thou art worthy to receive power. And verse 4 is roughly equivalent to we give thee thanks because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. In other words, the, um, the um, elders in the 11th chapter are giving God thanks because he has... Uh, made a fuller manifestation in the world, his omnipotent power and his reigning over all things, and they are glad of it. Although I still do greatly prefer the first, it seems to me that in Revelation chapter 4, they're extolling the attribute of his power. And here they're giving thanks for an exercise, a larger exercise of his power. So I do prefer the first, but you can see they're very very similar. One is praise and one is thanks. The second part of this verse, two reasons are given for this praise, this glory, honor, and power, this declaration of God's worthiness to receive these things. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So again, you have two reasons given for God's worthiness to receive glory, honor, and power. The first is because he is the creator of all. In the creation, you have a large display of his attributes, a display of his glory. As creator, he is worthy to be honored by all of his creation, and especially by his rational creatures. And, of course, the creation is a glorious display, a glorious and praiseworthy display of his power. And I think every human being that goes out and looks at the night sky is impressed by his great power. Or anyone who has uh, considered the whirlwind, the hurricane, or the tornado, earthquake, we see in these, but uh, his finger work, small displays of his power. So this is the first reason for praise. The second is closely related, but it is different. Uh, They praise God. They declare his worthiness to receive glory, honor, and power because all things exist 
And we're created uh, at his good pleasure or because he willed it. And so here his sovereignty comes very much into view. That, that expression there, for thy good pleasure, uh, it could also be translated because thou didst will it. For thou hast created all things. And because thou didst will it, they are and were created. So they exist at his will. And in this he shows uh, that all things are being, uh, were both created and are being wrought according to his will and purposes. It also tells you very much about uh, the purpose of the creation, which is the serving of his purposes. And namely, as we have said over and over again, that they are chiefly too, that he would be glorified and that his people would be edified and built up, that they would profit in a spiritual way. So in this we see that God ought to have honor from all of his creation because all of the creation is from him and for him. And we have expressions of this throughout the New Testament. And for him and through him and to him are all things to whom belongs all glory, honor, and praise both now and forevermore. You get these kinds of expressions in the scripture. We've looked at this more narrowly. Now I want you to back up a little bit and consider, consider more the context of the entire book. Why is this important in this book? God is getting ready to open to them or reveal to them a very difficult history for the church. Glorifying to him and good for them spiritually, but difficult. And here we are being assured that God created all. That he governs all from the throne and all things are being wrought according to his own good pleasure. And as I was looking on this, I'm not going to, to emphasize this very much uh, this morning, but it is something to think about. Uh, John Calvin did say that it was the very soul of wisdom to recognize the bounds of theology. And it's not an easy thing to do because on the one hand, we don't want to give up too early in the answering of questions because we want to appropriate everything that the scriptures teach, everything that they say, and everything that can be derived by good and necessary consequence. But we also need to recognize when we've come up against questions that cannot be answered, the answers to which are hidden in the mystery that is God himself and that he has not been pleased to reveal to us. And sometimes as we come up to the question, why are things thus? We cannot go any further than it has pleased him that they would be so. What purposes do they serve? Hard to see, but we know this. Glorifying to him and good for his people. How so? Hard to say where we are in, uh, in history. Perhaps we'll get a little bit more clarity on that later on down the road. And maybe not until eternity. But here we do bump up against the great mystery. Why are things the way that they are? Because he is pleased that they be so. Why did God create for his own good pleasure? Why did it please him that it would be so? Hard to say exactly. Except that it's a manifestation of his attributes. And he delights in this 
manifestation. But you see there, I've just reasoned in a circle, haven't I? It's a display of his attributes and the display delights him. So for his good pleasure. You see, I've not really said anything more. Uh, so here, uh, we are assured that all things are being wrought according to the counsel of his own will. And this is comforting to his church. This world can seem wild and out of control. You'll notice that the kingdoms of the world are going to be portrayed as a beast, as a thing that seems wild and untamed. But the Lord is able to hook the nose even of Leviathan. And in spite of the fact that things seem chaotic, all things are being superintended and ruled by him. In chapter 5, we're going to get a larger consideration of his will for uh, the unfolding of providence. And it's going to be symbolized as a book that's in the right hand of God, but that is not yet open to the eyes of men. But more on that uh, next week. I wanted to uh, derive from this a doctrine and a use. First, the doctrine, God is the creator of all things. Do you remember at the very beginning of our sermon series, we notice that uh, one of the ancient titles for this book is the Revelation of St. John the Divine. John the Theologian in the Old English uh, language. And those uh, theologians in ancient times thought that John's revelation was an entire body of divinity. That you could teach the whole system of doctrine from John's Apocalypse. And here we descend to a most fundamental doctrine of religion, which is the creation. It might be fair to say that it is the most fundamental doctrine of religion when you consider that God is the most fundamental being, but religion is relationship between God and man. And so here we have that most fundamental and most necessary relationship declared for us. And uh, children, I want you to pay particular attention this morning because here we have uh, lessons that are very suitable for you to take away. I don't know. Most of our families have probably used, at least for the first three questions as we train our children from the cradle, the first three questions of the young children's catechism. You will probably know them. Who made you? You know this answer? Who made you? God. Yes, you remember the answer. And what else did God make? All things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. Interestingly enough, all of this is proven from Revelation 4.11. God has made all things. And he has made all things for his own glory. Because what is it that the 24 elders are doing? Recognizing that they are created beings, that they've been made by his great power, they render to him glory and honor and extol his power. And parents, I would encourage you not to neglect this most necessary instruction. Without these concepts, without these basic concepts, there can be 
no religion. There can be no relationship between God and man without these concepts being firmly seated in the mind. And so let me go back through these things. Children, you should understand that God made you. That he fashioned you by his own power in very much the same way that a potter makes a pot. I don't know if you've done this in homeschool. I used to do this in elementary school. And we would make pots. We would go to art class and they would give us some of that clay and we would mold it with our hands and we'd make little pots and then we'd bake them in the oven and glaze them and other things like that. God has made us and fashioned us in a similar way. We are his handiwork for the work of his hands. As such, you belong to God. And this is very important. This was important to me all of those years ago as I was thinking about these things. Am I my own? And I can make up whatever purposes I want for myself. Do I belong to myself? And the answer is no. I don't belong to myself. And you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And you are not free to do as you please. God gave you life in the womb, and even right now he gives you being and life and strength. And he has the right to expect from you the fruit that he has desired and commanded. So having given you life and being and strength, he has the right to say, now I want you to use that for the fruits that I desire. And that would be uh, obedience. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience. He made man for a purpose. To glorify him. To glorify him in what we think. In what we speak. And in what we do. That's the proper fruit. So he's given us. It's very much. um, uh, My family's been doing a lot of gardening in recent years. We go outside. We drop the seeds for the tomato plant in the ground. We water it and nourish it. The plant doesn't belong to itself, nor do we just want it to simply be, but we want it to yield its proper fruit, which would be tomatoes. That's its proper fruit. For us, our proper fruit is the glory of God, to glorify him in the way that we think about him and about everything else, what we speak and what we do. The Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and uh, in a very similar sort of discourse, says that if we will not do that, we are not good for anything except to be cast out and trampled down as the mire of the streets. In which case then we will glorify God only in our destruction and in a display of his wrath. It's very much, imagine, imagine doing this. What would you do if you made a pot? You took the clay and you spent hours uh, molding it and you wanted a soup bowl. And so you mold it and you fashion it and then you spend more time baking it. Then you bring it out and you paint it and you glaze it and you have this pot and you put a lot of time and effort into it. And then you pour soup in it only to find that there's a hole in the bottom of it. And it won't hold any soup. You know what potters normally do with something like that? They throw it out onto the trash heap, just shatter it. It doesn't do 
what I made it to do. And so it's not good for anything. Um, So, children, you must remember, God made you, and so you don't belong to yourself. And he made you for a very specific purpose. And he has a right to the fruit of your life. And the proper fruit of your life is to give glory to God in everything that you do. And uh, maybe just one final word to parents. Um, I, I prefer the shorter catechism to the young child's catechism, but even these very questions or these very words uh, are very helpful because they are short answers that you can teach a child from the from the grave. You can't you can't teach an 18 month old you know the first catechism question, but they can squeak out God. Um, and I remember uh, my wife was telling me about Jacobus Coleman's book where he said that. In the catechizing of the children right from the very beginning, uh, since they are going to learn to talk, you might as well give them words worth saying. And these are words worth saying. And in these three questions, you have really the kernel of all of the rest of our holy religion. If I might advance upon that, in your outline you should also have the shorter catechism. And three questions there which also... Uh, summarize uh, the very same truths and yet in more detail. Shorter Catechism, uh, question and answer seven. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will whereby for his own glory he had foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. How doth God execute his decrees? God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Now here we have a a highlighting of something that we didn't quite get in the young child's catechism. Here we have another truth from Revelation 4.11 highlighted. That all things are done according to the counsel of God's will. Creation is according to his will. And all of this is proven from our text. So here they say that all things unfold according to God's decree, the eternal purpose and counsel of his own will, and that he executes that by creating things and governing them, that is, providence. And then in the first catechism question, we have the purpose for which all things, and chiefly man, were created. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So the proper fruit that can be expected from our lives is glory in thought, word, and deed. And last time we were together, I, um, I, I really emphasized that we are to be glorifying Him in our service in the extension of His kingdom. And this is something that we always ought to have in our minds, upon our hearts, in our mouths, and in our hands by way of deeds. And let us never uh, forget that. This is the desired fruit that God would have of us, especially of us who are the redeemed of the Lord. But we can add here, the the divines go a little bit further here in saying that in all of our God-glorying activities, 
we also enter into an enjoyment of Him. So God did not create us to glorify Him and for us to esteem this as being a miserable service, but to glorify Him and esteem this as being a sweet and enjoyable service because we are living with Him and living in His presence. I mentioned that this is foundational, this doctrine of the creation, because when we see that God is our Creator, And he has the right to the commanded fruit of our lives. We also learn what sin is. That we have not yielded the commanded fruit. We learn our need of a savior. So we uh, learn something of our need of a full and free justification. And it also tells us something of our duty for life. To keep all of his commandments. Because the keeping of his commandments is how we glorify him. And finally, a use, and we'll, this will bring us to a, to a song, but let us worship the creator and governor of all, for he is worthy. And I am struck here, uh, frequently when you, when you bump into Arminians, or unhappily even in our day when you bump into other Calvinists, they will treat the the sovereignty of God as if it were no very important thing. Uh, As if it... uh, I'm reminded of uh, the attitude of Philip Melanchthon when he began to fall away from Luther's doctrine concerning the sovereignty of God. He wrote to Calvin and he said that, you know, that uh, it's fine for theologians and schoolmen to talk about the sovereignty of God over all things and... God's predestination and election and reprobation. It's fine for schoolmen to do that, but it ought not to be preached. And Calvin's response is something like, what? So, so here we have this glorious attribute of God that we are supposed to conceal and lock up in the schools, part of the whole counsel of God that is not to be proclaimed to uh, God's people. And James Durham, as he's reflecting upon this, and here we get to a very practical matter. So I do remember when I was first learning about the sovereignty of God, and I was wondering, you know, what are, what are its practical elements? How does it shape us? How should we then live? James Durham said that praise will never be perfect until we worship him as sovereign. As we see the worship of the 24 perfected as they worship him who is working all things after the counsel of his own will. Because thou didst will it, all things are and were created. And therefore thou art worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. Open your Psalters to Psalm 148. We'll sing verses 1 through 14 to the tune Darwa. And I do believe it is uh, another of the same, the second rendering. Here we have both, I, I thought of this psalm because we have both creation and God's overruling providence in verses 5 and 6. From God your beings are Him therefore famous make. Notice the same reasoning. He's the creator. Therefore, we worship. 
you all created were when he the word but spake. And from that place where fixed you be by his decree you cannot pass. In God's gover- government of all of his creation. So let us rise and sing with all of our hearts to our God.